So uh, we're looking at, by the way, I, I should say happy birthday because today we are celebrating the birthday of the church, which is, which is Pentecost. It is not the day of Pentecost, but we have decided that this is the day of Pentecost that we're going to celebrate at least as, um, as Pentecost. And it's actually quite fun because we don't necessarily identify as a Pentecostal church, but tonight we are a Pentecostal church because we're going to, just going to focus on, on Pentecost. So guys, what I want to do is I want, us to, I want to give you a brief overview of a theme in Scripture. And I'm going to paint in broad brushstrokes and I'm going to lose some of you, um, but in the end... Those who persevere, they, they will find comprehension. So, so the story of God, and I'm going to assume a lot of biblical literacy here. The, the story of God starts off in the Garden of Eden. And the, the picture that we get there is that this is this little microcosm where heaven and earth overlap. Okay, This is a place where God dwells with mankind and and, and the best description is this overlap of heaven and earth. It is where his presence dwells. But as you know, in the rest of the story, mankind rebels against God. They choose against God. And an exile of sorts ensues. In other words, they, they lose God's presence. They move away from, from God's presence. But the story of the Bible is God's constant attempt to regain that presence to regain that presence with mankind, to get that marriage between heaven and earth back on track. And there are many people that he calls and many people that he, he journeys with in this attempt, but there's one guy in particular that is interesting, and as a matter of fact, we're going to start looking at his life from next week, and that is Moses. And when he encounters God in this bush at one point, the bush is on fire, and the, 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 the idea is, is that this is holy ground, be very careful, to come close, but what we, the, the picture that we get there is that this fire here is symbolic of God's presence. The presence that we lost in the Garden of Eden is now present here in this burning bush, all right? The story continues, and that same Moses rescues the people, the, the Israelites from, from slavery out of Egypt, and he takes them back to where he had that encounter with the burning bush at Mount Sinai. They, they are at the same place. And now again, we see fire. But this time, fire is on top of the mountain, and the Israelites are scared of, of, of God and of fire. So they say, okay, Moses, you go. Um, you, you go and negotiate on our behalf. We'll stay down there. But again, it becomes symbolic of God's presence, this fire above Mount Sinai. And then Moses gets instructions in terms of a tabernacle, what should happen there, how, what it should look like, etc., and then God says that I'm going to be with you. And again, what is the symbol? What is the, the picture of God's presence with them? It's fire that descends on the tabernacle. And eventually, you can see how this fire, how God's presence moves from the tabernacle to the, the, the temple that was later built. And because I know that you guys don't believe me when I give you these broad brushstrokes, I at least need to back it up with a little bit of scripture. So in 2 Corinthians, uh, not, sorry, not Corinthians, Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles 7, we read the following. This is from verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. 
when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. All right, so there again you have the symbol of fire, not fire, fire equaling God's presence. Are you guys with me so far? Okay. But in Ezekiel 10, we see although God is with his people in this limited but real way, people continuously rebel against him. And what happens in the story of the Bible every time mankind rebels, there's an exile of sorts. Whether it comes from the Assyrians, they are taken away, they are scattered. Whether it comes from the Babylonians, they are taken away, they are scattered. They lose their temple, they lose the presence of God, and they are scattered all over the place. And even when they came back after the Babylonian exile, there was a deep sense among many people in the Jewish community that God's presence God's presence hasn't really returned to the temple. Even though uh, Herod, for example, rebuilt the temple, there was a sense that, that God's presence never really returned. And in Ezekiel 10, we have this very vivid and tragic image of God's presence leaving the temple. So people felt like that, that closeness, that little bit of heaven and earth that overlapped that they had at one stage, they've, they've lost. But every now and then, God's spirit will rest on one of the prophets and the prophets full of full of God's spirit will will speak and 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 they will confront the world with their sin and they will give history from God's perspective and then again you'll have a bit of prophet a bit of exile a bit of prophet a bit of exile but then there's this vision that one of these prophets see in his name is Isaiah and in Isaiah 11 he says the following He's, he's talking about the presence of God and, and, and what this might look like in the future. And he says the following. This is Isaiah 11 from verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad, by the way. And the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It will be a spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and might. A spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And now I'm jumping to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of, uh, of the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Paphros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and he will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This vision says the following. When the Spirit of the Lord comes on this descendant of David, what is one of the first things that will happen? He will gather the tribes. People will come together. All of the scatterings that's been hap happening in, in the various exiles will Will, uh, they will come forth, they will, they will come out of exile, and they will be united. This is the vision. But again, God's presence, few and far between in this story of, of most of the Old Testament. And then a person arrives on the scene called Jesus Christ. And something very interesting happens. At his baptism, and I think we read... We, we, we studied the scripture on his baptism, I think last week, as a matter of fact. There's an interesting scene. 
Do you guys remember that scene? There's a dove that descends on him. What is the, what is, what is the dove symbolic of? The spirit. The spirit. So here's someone, and this dove, this spirit, is on Jesus. And later on, by the way, the same Jesus says that in, uh, in, 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 the, in, in three days, uh, the temple will be destroyed, and in three days it will be rebuilt. And everybody tells him, are you, are you stupid? What, what is he referring to? He's referring to his body. He is the temple. Remember, the temple is the place where God's presence dwells, right? But we, we've seen that God has left the building, so to speak. And, and now, in the beginning of this Jesus story, although he rests every now and then on certain prophets, in the person of Jesus, the Spirit comes and it rests on him. And the, the image is, is startling. The implications is, is, is quite um, amazing in the sense that this is now the walking temple. John, reflecting on all of this, said, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Uh, he says that Jesus, he, when, he, when it's translated, he moved among us. It's act it actually means he tabernacled among us. He templed among us. He was a walking temple where God's presence dwelt fully on him. And then, I'm doing a brief history of a lot here. Yeah? And then, eventually... He says, after his death and resurrection, he is going to give his spirit to his followers. And that is the passage that we are about to encounter. Are you guys with me so far? I gave you a lot of information. If you are a little bit lost, it, it is also okay. But I want to give you a little bit of the Jewish imagination that would have been part of their maps, architectural maps in their head when they're trying to make sense of everything. Um, and, and maybe we need to have that in mind as we come to this passage of Pentecost. And this is in Acts 2. Acts 2 from verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling our own tongues, at the, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked them and said they were f filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and uh, give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour. <laughs> okay? So he's saying it's early, they're not drunk. If it was a little bit later, sure, they usually get drunk then, but it's, it's, it's too early for that. Um, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right. So the first thing that I need to, need to point out here is that I told you that the Spirit of the Lord is associated with prophecy. All right. So what happens now after this spirit has now rested on all of these individuals in the, in the upper room, they are now considered prophets. Now remember, to, to have been a prophet was a very elite thing. It, was a very, uh, it wasn't something that happened very often. You had your Jeremiah's, you had your Amos's, you had your Elijah's. But now, because of Pentecost, because of this victory that Jesus achieved through his death and resurrection, this spirit is now is now descending on all of his followers. And now even the, the lowest of these, they have now this power to speak and see things from, from God's perspective. So this is the first thing that is incredibly startling. Remember also that fire being the presence of God is now a little bit different. Because what did you have on top of the tabernacle? You had a pillar of fire. What did you have when, it, when, when, when the fire moved into the temple? A pillar of fire. What happens now in the upper room? You've got tongues of fire resting on each individual. Can you see that everything has changed now where it used to be confined to a specific place, where it used to be confined to specific individuals? Now it's just going everywhere. You've got these tongues of, of fire. This is a... Um, some people talks about it is a democratization of the temple where that used to be the only place where you could find God it is now gone to all of his followers this is very very startling that's the first thing the second thing that I think the early followers would have picked up on is this that in the same way that every time there's an exile the people of Israel are scattered they are all over the world now they are being gathered. Why does Luke, who wrote Acts, why does he go through so much effort to tell us they, you, get, you had people from Cappadocia, you had people from Arabia, you had people from Mesopotamia, modern-day Iran, Iraq. He just goes on and tells you where all these people came from and that they were able to comprehend one another. What is he getting at? He's saying this is the gathering of the tribes. This is the gathering of the nation. When the Spirit of God comes, he will gather all of these people. So this is super exciting, all right? Now, Pentecost was a Jewish festival. It wasn't a, it's not a festival that started with the pouring out of the Spirit. It was an existing Jewish festival. And it was typically, uh, Pentecost, you guys can figure it out, comes from the word 50, all right? So in the same way that you've got the Pentagon and the Pentagram, you have Pentecost, so it's 50 days after Passover. So they usually count 
roughly seven times, seven days after Passover, and it was associated with harvest. So you would bring you, the, the first fruits from your harvest, because remember, Israel now, which is you know, around about Pentecost time, this is early summer. So this is the beginning of the harvest, so they would bring their first fruits. If they came from places like Cappadocia or Iran, then they won't bring first fruits, they would bring raisins and dried fruit, all right? And uh, they, it, it was symbolic of the fact that we, we give this in the knowledge that, that more is to come. And we trust God for the fact that more will come. All right? That is what the sacrifice um, and the celebration of Pentecost is, the, the first fruits. But here's the thing, friends. Why does Jesus, what does God decide that on this feast of Pentecost, he's going to pour out the Spirit? Because this is the first fruit of what is yet to come. Do you guys get that? So this is the beginning of the harvest. There's so much more that is, that is still to come. But this is the beginning of it. This is the beginning of something new. This is the beginning of, of a new dispensation. And again, people would have been incredibly astonished. Again, friends, I want you to see that the heaven and earth is now overlapping, not in Herod's temple, it's not on Mount Sinai. It's now overlapping in every person that gives his allegiance to Jesus. This would have been mind-boggling to these first uh, followers of, of Jesus. So it sounds amazing, and I think it is amazing. But if you get a fuzzy feeling when you think about Pentecost, you think, oh, wow, that's amazing. God now dwells in me. Um, his presence is in me, and that is just great news. We need to be careful because Jesus warned us that this is not something that comes without a sense of responsibility. It is actually quite dangerous when the fire escapes the temple and rests on us. So in John 16, Jesus warns his disciples of the of the Spirit and what will happen when the Spirit comes. So he says this in John 16 from verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, the helper being the Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. If you think that it is just exciting and cute and lovely, now that the Spirit has been poured out and it rests on, on anyone who gives his allegiance to Jesus and receives the Spirit, um, here's the thing. The prophets who had the Spirit in the Old Testament, were they popular? Not at all. What did they do? They convicted the world of sin. They confronted the world with God's message. And it was never a popular message. So what's the beauty now? All the sons and daughters, even Afrikaners, even uh, uh, Bendas. English, it, it's, it, it's theologically debatable. But the, the point is, <laughs> God's, God's presence rests on all these people. Um, and, 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 and it is... It is, it is amazing, yes, but 
But what is the first implication that Jesus says? If you're a prophet, then you're going to have to testify. You're going to have to contradict this world at times. And that is going to be unpopular. What is the second thing that happens? He talks about righteousness here. He says, um, you will... There will be judgment concerning the Father, concerning judgment, um, concerning righteousness. In other words, the life that you are supposed to live, now that the Spirit lives in you, is going to have to be completely radical. There's going, there's going to have to be a lifestyle repentance. And if there's not, then you don't understand the story of Pentecost. What is the first thing, friends, that happens in the book of Acts? When we, the, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, they see these crazy tongues, and Peter gives a sermon, he says they're not drunk, um, this is what's going on, and they see, oh my goodness, this is the reversal of, of, of what we've lost in the Garden of Eden, this is the culmination of all of these things, and the fire now rests on each and every one of us, um, and God's presence that dwelt in Jesus in a unique way, him being the temple, has now been passed on to us, and the implications are startling. Paul later reflects on it, and he says that we are collectively a temple, and we need to behave accordingly in as much as we are churches, and then he talks about sexual um, ethics, and he says that each and every one of us are individual temples as well, and you cannot just uh, violate these, these temples. So the implications are startling. Do we live as if the Spirit of the Lord um, is, is, is taking residence in our lives? But then, in Acts 2, from verse 42, immediately we see what happens with this, this new group of spiritful believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can you see this radical lifestyle repentance that happens in this new spirit-filled community? It's not business as usual. So there are two things that happens. The first one is this radical life of righteousness. And the second thing that happens, just keep reading the book of Acts. They clash with the temple authorities. They clash with the Jewish authorities. So what is going on? If I, if I had to write a, um, uh, a movie one day of the beginning of Acts, so actually the whole book of Acts, I would call it the clash of the temples because now you've got the temple establishment versus this new spiritual temples, these mobile temples, and they are clashing. Jesus warned them in John 16, this is something that would happen because as a prophet, you guys will witness to the truth and you will convict the world of its sin, and the world doesn't really like to be convicted of its sin. So it is inevitable. And as soon as the, the Jewish authorities and the, the clash there uh, starts to uh, not wear off, it just takes on a new dynamic because now this temple 
this new kingdom of God is clashing with the global authorities, with Rome. So can you see that that fuzzy feeling that we just had a moment ago of God's spirit resting on all of us and it's just wonderful and it's just amazing and we don't have to go to the temple anymore to experience God's presence. Can you see how it completely changed the picture? It comes with a massive responsibility. It comes as a massive challenge. Is there lifestyle repentance? Do we live as, as, as new temples? And secondly, are we prophets? Are we standing up? Are we convicting the world of sin? These are difficult questions that we, that we need to ask ourselves. Friends, there's another element that we need to focus on just real quick, and that is when, if you read the beginning of Acts, there's one thing that you will pick up the whole time, and it says they were all one, they were all together, they were all one, they were all together. Now, here's the interesting thing. Many of us will interpret the tongues of fire resting on all believers as a way of saying, ha, you see, no institutional religion, uh, th those days are over, we live in a post-temple age, um, I have access to God by myself, but that doesn't really fit what we read in the beginning of Acts. They were all together, they were all together, they were all together. As a matter of fact, when Jesus, when Jesus promises them the Spirit will come, then that is part of this long discourse where he says, and you, you will be one, and you must be one, and you will be one, and he prays that we will be one. Here's the thing, friends. If you want to experience the Spirit, if you want to live a life filled with the Spirit, it is not something that you can do in isolation. The Bible doesn't have a category for that. That is just Western individualism nonsense. The only chance we have to live a spirit-filled life is together. It is not a coincidence that, that, that these people, these disciples of, of Jesus, were together in the upper room anticipating God, praying, and then the, pouring of the, the outpouring of the Spirit happened. That is not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence that as soon as that happens, they come together and they, they form this community where they share bread together, where they take care of the poor together, where they live out the fruit of the Spirit together. This is not a proof text for we can do Christianity by ourselves by just listening to a cool podcast every now and then. That is not biblical Christianity. That is not biblical faith. So if you want to, 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 to understand this Spirit-filled life, you're going to have to do it in community. It might be this community or it might be another community, but unfortunately or fortunately, there are no categories to understand this in isolation. Friends, I know it can be a little bit abstract, but let me just try and land it. In, in the past, God's fire was to a certain extent domesticated. It was neatly there on Mount Sinai. It was neatly on the tabernacle. It was neatly on the temple. And God's presence was there. But the, the story of Pentecost is that the fire has escaped the fireplace. And that is dangerous. You might have had a domesticated faith in the past where you can just go about your life and, and there's God, that's the fireplace, that's the temple, that's where I go for that and this is my secular life. But that is not living in the Pentecost reality. That is not understanding what Pentecost was all about. I, uh, and, and you know what, we can see it also in the book of Acts. The first thing that happens is that their lifestyles changes radically 
radical hospitality, radical generosity, radical openness. There's no anonymity in this group. All right, that's the first thing that changes. And the second thing that we can see is that they clash with the establishment so much so that we will soon read about Stephen, the first martyr. Can you see that? It is ridiculously challenging when the spirit of the Lord descends. There's nothing romantic about this. All right. Friends, I want to double-click on this dangerous element. I'm not sure if you guys can relate to this uh, experience, but when I was at school, I used to have a family life and I used to have a school life. And I quite liked my family life and I quite liked my school life. But every now and then something weird would happen. My mom would be at school and there would be this massive awkward disconnect, like why are you here? Like I, I see you every day and I see you every day, but I don't see you together every day. This is strange, these, these parent-teacher moments. Or something else that would happen is I would be in the shops or I would do, do something, I would go for a run or whatever, and then I'll, I'll encounter my teacher, uh, you know, in spot. And like, oh, um, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's uncomfortable because I know how to deal with you in this space, but I don't know how to deal with, with you in this space. Now, now, friends, I think that is how we deal with our faith as well. We've got a nice little compartment, a nice little fireplace for faith over here. And then it's not really supposed to connect with all of these things. Pentecost says that the fire has escaped the fireplace and everything is now, as the cool kids say, lit. All right? It is now... It has... It, it, it is not easy to easily distinguish and divide um, the world into this is, this is, this is where I have my, my nice spiritual stuff and this is where I, where I do everything else. If you can neatly place your hobbies, your, your sex life, how you spend your money, your, your habits, your recreation, if you can neatly put it in a category over here and you can neatly put your little church life over here and maybe a Bible study every now and then, maybe a church service every now and then, if you can do that, then you have not fully understood the reality of Pentecost. It is all-consuming. That fire takes everything. I, I suspect, because I, I know this of myself at the very least, that, that I do not live this on-fire lifestyle. I don't always live in the reality of, of Pentecost. This thing that was the hope of the Jewish people for centuries that changed everything. I, 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 I need reminding of that. And that is why every year we need to be reminded of Pentecost. Every year we need to be reminded of this amazing event that happened. And we need to adjust our lives accordingly. Because friends, many of us, I know it's winter, but we grow cold and we lose that fire. One of the ways in which we gain that fire again is by coming together. If you want to kill a fire, 
you separate the charcoal from each other. If you want to keep the fire going, you put it together. That is, that is the mechanism that God gave us to, to sustain this radical fire of the Spirit, is to do life together. When we live in righteousness, in radical righteousness, there's no anonymity. We don't live these isolated, isolated hidden lives. We are accountable to people. I do want to stress, friends, that we've domesticated our faith. We've domesticated this thing. Um, it's, not radical, it's not radical anymore. We live in Pretoria. I mean, there are more churches than people. Like even, uh, even the houses are somewhat Christian. You know, like physically the house. When you go in there, love, hope, peace. In this house, we will serve the Lord. You know, there, there are more Christian houses than Christian people. So it's, it's a very overchurched environment. And it's so easy for us to get this very domesticated faith. But that is not what Jesus calls us to. This fire must consume everything. The fire or the spark that Jesus started on the cross, that fire that was extended to us at the day of Pentecost, given to, 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 to all believers, all people who give their allegiance to Jesus, we cannot trivialize that. We must honor that massive event and we must sustain it in community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for the fact that you are a God who is consistently pursuing us throughout history. As soon as we lose your presence, we go into exile, then you just start again and your fire is just searching for a little area that you can again merge heaven and earth. We see it all through the Old Testament and then just the, the startling event in, at, at Pentecost, Lord. I, I pray that we will recognize the, the massive significance of that day. Lord, I pray that it will not just be something that just superficially that we superficially engage with, but that it'll be something that really penetrates our hearts. Lord, so many of us, if not all of us, such compartmentalized and domesticated uh, faiths in, in the sense that we, uh, we put you in a box and we, we talk about you and we think about you maybe in little allocated time slots and that's it. But our generosity, the way we spend our money, the way we spend, how we handle our bodies, our sex lives, uh, our hospitality, uh, the gossiping, everything else in our lives does not necessarily align with it. And the only reason for that is, Lord, because we are still keeping the fire in the fireplace. And that is not what we are called to. That's not what you designed. Pray, Lord, that we, will, that we will live the dangerous life, the life where the fire escapes and rests on us, Lord. And I pray that that fire will consume us, that everything in our lives, our hobbies, our habits, will be transformed by that spirit. I pray, Lord, that we can 
can have that type of tight-knit community that we read about here in the beginning of Acts 2 where people are just doing life together. If we can have something of that. But also, Lord, that we will be brave and where we have to stand against this world, where we have to contradict it, that we will be able to do it, that we will, that we will stand in that prophetic tradition. So I pray, Lord, that we will not quench this fire that took everything out of you to give it to us. I pray, Lord, that we will, that we will be on fire, that this little community will be on fire, that it will be reignited, and that it will be a light to people so that they can come to the light, so that they can come to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.